millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The latest from 7 News with Angela Cox. Good evening and welcome. Breaking tonight, the government reveals they've ordered a breakthrough anti-COVID drug. We'll tell you how it works and how much is on the way. The 80% vaccine milestone Australia will hit tomorrow. We're hours away from Gladys Berejiklian's official replacement being announced live to New South Wales Parliament and why controversy surrounds the royal secret spending revealed by the Pandora Papers. But we begin with that news just in. The government confirming tonight it has ordered an antiviral COVID treatment which can halve the risk of ending up in hospital or dying with the virus. Political reporter Rob Scott is standing by in our Parliament House Bureau. Rob, how many doses will we receive? Well, 300,000 to begin with, Ange. The government confirming just in the last few minutes that it signed a deal with American pharmaceutical company Merck to buy its so-called red pill. Now, it's called molnupiravir, and it's been described as a miracle treatment showing that it can slash hospitalisation and death rates from COVID by 50%. Now, it was originally developed to treat the flu, and it works by interfering with the way the virus replicates in the body, preventing it uh, from progressing from mild to severe disease. But it is an experimental drug still uh, in late-stage clinical trials in the US, so it has to pass those and then be approved by our, our TGA before Australians can actually access it. But if all goes well, it is expected to arrive on our shores early next year. Certainly sounds promising. And, Rob, this isn't the only anti-COVID drug we've secured supplies for. No, that's right, Anja. As the country prepares to open up, the government is not only investing in vaccines, but also treatments in anticipation of a rise in infections. Now, today, the uh, health minister, Greg Hunt, announced he'd quadrupled the order for sotrovimab, which is an intravenous antiviral. It was first approved by the TGA in August, and it's being used right across the country right now uh, with excellent results. So the government's securing more than 31,000 doses of that to add to the medical stockpile. But, Ange, it is important to remember that all these are treatments and vaccination remains the best way to prevent catching the virus in the first place. Indeed. OK. Thanks so much. Rob Scott in Canberra for us. In a few minutes, we'll hear from an epidemiologist who will tell us exactly how these drugs work. But right now, parents and students in Victoria have greater clarity tonight on what they can expect if a COVID case is reported in the classroom. Isolation rules will change once the state meets its COVID vaccine thresholds. Let's go live to Georgia Comensoli in Melbourne for us tonight. Officially, the world's most locked down city. Georgia, what's the plan? 
Well, Ange, to put it in perspective, over the last two years, 414 Victorian schools have had to go into complete lockdown because of exposure. But with this new plan, that should never happen again. Instead, what will happen if there's a positive case on site? Only a small select group of people will need to go into isolation or quarantine at home. There are a few rules which will determine who will need to go home, and that includes whether or not they were wearing masks, whether they were able to socially distance in the classroom, and how long their exposure period was. But let's take a listen to our Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, from earlier today. That will minimise the disruption for kids and it will be a, a really positive development, I think, in terms of uh, making sure that the uh, learning is, is disrupted to the uh, least possible degree uh, for all of those kids and teachers. It is good news for parents. And Georgia, tradies across the state are back at work tomorrow, but there are conditions. And that's right, they're back after that two-week shutdown, but every tradie on site will need to have had at least one vaccination dose before they can get back to work. And each site will still be running under capacity limits. Smaller sites will be running at 25% capacity, larger ones at 50% capacity. And each site will need to have a COVID marshal who will be checking the vaccination status of each employee and contractor. And for tradies going forward, if they do want to still work on site, they'll need to be fully vaccinated before November. 13. It's and been a controversial issue. Thanks so much, Georgia Commonsoli, live for us in Melbourne. In a matter of hours, more than 80% of Australians will have received their first COVID vaccine. Here's how the race to vaccinate stands as we go to air. In the past 24 hours, more than 138,000 doses were administered across the country. Sunday continues to deliver our lowest figures, but the total number of vaccines received is now more than 28.7 million. 70% of us will be fully immunised by the 23rd of October. The 80% reopening target should come on the 5th of November. Contact tracers are at a loss tonight to explain how a Brisbane woman contracted COVID-19, the mystery case not yet linked to a current cluster. Sally Guy joins us now from Brisbane. Sally, she was infectious and in the community for 10 days, yet still no lockdown. Why are health authorities so confident this time around? Well, and our Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young, says she's comfortable with the level of restrictions we have in place here in Queensland currently and is actually really reassured by the number of tests we've been doing here. Over 100,000 tests of COVID-19 have been conducted here in the southeast corner just in the last week and no new chains of transmission have been detected. Now, this woman is a woman in her 50s. She was fully vaccinated and a masseuse. She began developing symptoms last week, continuing to see customers and until she tested positive yesterday. As a result, a number of venues right across the southeast, multiple stores, massage parlours are tonight on COVID alert, deemed exposure sites. So anyone who's been to any of those sites and of course is showing any symptoms are urged to get tested. Okay and Sally, from tomorrow text messages are going out to Queenslanders pushing the vaccine cause. Yes, from midday tomorrow, millions of Queenslanders will be receiving a text message or a pre-recorded voice memo telling them this is a message from Queensland Health. This is the time to get the COVID-19 vaccine. It's safe, effective and free. And this is, of course, the way that the government communicates vital information to everybody during natural disasters and emergencies. OK, Sally Guide reporting for us in Brisbane. Thank you. 
Tough COVID restrictions have been introduced in Mount Gambier in South Australia. After a woman was rushed to hospital with COVID, there are questions about her story tonight. She told authorities she'd only travelled within the 70-kilometre border bubble with Victoria, but her local hospital said she'd actually been in Melbourne. A sudden spring hailstorm has hit parts of Melbourne, creating a whiteout in some suburbs. SES crews are right now responding to more than 800 calls to help fix the damage. The system is bringing with it powerful wind gusts and rain. And a tornado swept through Horsham in the west of Victoria, the second twister spotted in Australia within a week. Tomorrow we'll usher in a sweeping overhaul of the leadership of the New South Wales Coalition, starting with a new Premier in the morning. Tom Hartley is outside State Parliament in Sydney for us. Tom, Dominic Perrottet is all but guaranteed to take over. How will that play out? Well, Ange, the Liberal Party will meet and make that vote tomorrow morning. And while Dom Perrottet is the front runner, is the clear favourite at this point in time, his appointment isn't guaranteed because he does have opposition from Rob Stokes, who's the current planning minister. Uh, Mr Stokes says he's the man for the job because he has more experience and under his leadership, women would be better represented would have better representation. So that vote is at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, Ange, and more resignations could follow afterwards. Tom, once the top job is filled, the Coalition will need to find a Deputy Premier. Here's the Nationals leader, John Barillaro, calling I time on his political career. And I'm now, I'll look to a new career. I turned 50 in November, maybe a bit of a midlife crisis, but I'm definitely thinking about what's next. I'm going to take some time out, uh, but I generally... Uh, I won't be running for federal politics. The hits keep coming, Tom. Who's putting their hands up in the National Party? Well, Ange, there's only one official candidate so far. That's Melinda Pavey, who's the current Water Minister. Now, it's understood that she actually put her name forward before uh, John Barillaro had officially resigned as the Deputy Premier, which has infuriated quite a few of her colleagues and, and might hurt her chances there. So it's understood that... Paul Toole, who's the current Nationals deputy, uh, will throw his hat in the ring tomorrow morning and it's very likely that he will get the vote and the confidence of, of his colleagues. But, I mean, uh, as we've seen, anything could happen in 24 hours here in politics in New South Wales. So uh, we'll, we'll hold our breaths till tomorrow, Ange. Yeah, a chaotic time. OK, thanks so much. Tom Hartley in Sydney for us. A large oil spill off the California coast has been called an environmental catastrophe after killing thousands of fish and birds and contaminating nearby wetlands. The US Coast Guard is leading a clean-up operation and investigating the breach at the Ellie Oil Rig, which sits between Los Angeles and San Diego. Britain's Metropolitan Police Commissioner says she is deeply concerned about a rape charge against an officer who worked for the same unit as Sarah Everard's killer Wayne Cousins. 46-year-old David Carrick has been suspended from the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Command after being arrested on Saturday. It's alleged he attacked a woman in St Albans, north of London. And the military has stepped in to help tackle Britain's fuel crisis. Soldiers who underwent training last week have arrived at an oil depot north of London to help deliver petrol to the city and its worst-hit southern regions. Retailers say the crisis looks set to continue for at least another week. 
The financial secrets of the world's rich and powerful have been exposed after a major leak of almost 12 million private documents. Finance editor Gemma Acton is with me now. Gemma, they're calling this the Pandora Papers. What do they show? Well, this is a leak that's gone to the ICIJ, and that's a group of around 600 journalists from 117 countries around the world who work for organisations such as New York Times and the BBC. They got given these 12 million documents um, about 18 months ago. They've been sifted through them to try and work out what's in there and over the next few months they'll share more and more with us. Today it was mostly a list of names and what these documents entail is offshore tax vehicles used by the ultra-wealthy, so where people have stored property or luxury assets like yachts or millions or in some cases billions of dollars. Uh, now, in and of itself, it is not illegal to put money in an offshore tax vehicle. There are some legitimate reasons for doing so, such as estate planning, um, but it is also a vehicle that's often used by criminals, people who want to hide money, launder money, evade tax authorities. So of this list, there'll be some people who are completely complying with the laws in their relevant country uh, and some people who are involved with very shady dealings indeed. But yeah, a massive dump of documents and some recognisable names in there. <laughs> yes. uh, there's a lot of celebrities, um, Elton John, Ringo Starr, Claudia Schiffer, Shakira, um, Sachin Tendulkar for cricket fans. Also quite a lot of politicians who'll have some explaining to do because they've always campaigned on anti-corruption and anti-tax avoidance grounds such as the President of Kenya or the President of Ukraine, Prime Minister of the Czech Republic. Tony Blair, the former UK Prime Minister and his wife um, Sherry had got to mention as well. Uh, interestingly, the Queen's estate has launched an internal investigation because it looks as though they brought a around $130 million London property from the ruler of Azerbaijan, who has uh, alleged links to corruption as well. Four to six um, Russian oligarchs are in there as well. Not Vladimir Putin himself, but a lot of his associates. Uh, so no, it's certainly a long list of very interesting names. And beyond that, an assortment of bankers and lawyers and criminals and fugitives, uh, all sorts really. No wonder they're calling it Pandora's Papers. <laughs> this is Pandora's Box. Now, I understand also Australian authorities are saying that they're going to be looking into links. Yes, so it seems that there are around 400 Australians named on this list. Again, no suggestion that anyone's done anything wrong, but the Australian Tax Office has said, look, we're going to take this information, compare it to our own intelligence and see if there's much overlap. Certainly we'll give them something to look at. Uh, and another Australian link is that of those 12 million documents, almost 2 million of them came from a firm which was set up by an Australian accountant uh, a couple of decades ago. And uh, this firm has been in trouble before with the authorities. Uh, in Singapore, they had to pay a big fine for um, assisting with money laundering. So it's certainly um, not uh, above board and, and it'll be certainly a focus of the inquiries, I assume, as well. A lot of reading, but it would be interesting reading. <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about it. Okay, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Ange. A new pill that could halve the number of COVID-19 hospitalisations could soon be approved in the US. For more, let's bring in epidemiologist Professor Catherine Bennett. Catherine, this so-called red pill, it's been called a potential game changer. Talk us through the results of the clinical trial. Well, this is a, an important development, Ange. It's a trial that was run with people who were at high, particularly high risk of hospitalisation. Uh, this is the interim result. So they've had the first... Uh, 775 people who they followed up and they found they gave half this red pill and they gave the other half a placebo and they found the risk of actually escalating their illness to the point where they need hospitalisation was halved in the group that had the, um, the red pill and in fact 
they also found that they had no deaths in that group, whereas there were eight in the you know, 340 or so who were in the, um, the placebo group. So it does bode well. Um, it's particularly important, though, that this is a drug that's given very early in the infection. That's when it will have its effect. But if it means that people who, um, who are at risk of serious illness, if I've got a breakthrough infection or they haven't been able to be vaccinated, for example, then they're the people that will benefit from this if it can at least give them that, that 50% reduction. It's still a small trial. They're the interim results, but it's very promising. And every extra tool we have uh, to, to combat particularly the serious illness is, a, is an important breakthrough. I guess certainly not something that you want to have instead of the vaccine, though. Oh, absolutely not. Um, and in fact, you know, it might work as well as the vaccine for those few people that do have breakthrough infections, particularly people who are very vulnerable and could then need hospitalisation. Vaccines reduce your risk of hospitalisation by 95% for your age group. So that's still absolutely the most protection you can have. Um, this gives us a backup, though, if that hasn't worked for the individual. This news comes as a different treatment. Uh, an intravenous drug has arrived in Australia. What are the differences between the two treatments? Well, the immunoglobulin that we're... Um, these are the new drugs that, that we've had the agreements with and have now just arrived in, in Australia. These are given intravenously as opposed to the oral pill, which is the, the red pill. Um, they are building a... a, a giving someone an immune response that they can't mount themselves. So again, it's another way of fighting the virus. The, the red pills and antiviral treatment, it, it um, actually interferes with the virus, causes mutations in the virus. And so that's the way it, it handles the infection. The immunoglobulin is actually giving you an immune response, you know, in, in your arm, basically, because you haven't got that immune response yourself. So it gives you that boosted um, protection from antibodies that are actually um, added to your system. Mm. So they're both really important. They could potentially be used in conjunction because they work differently. But at the same time, again, you know, the more we have um, in hand, particularly for people who um, could be treated at home that might not need hospitalisation at all, the very people who in the past were the ones most likely to end up in hospital. And all helping us to reopen, which is what we need. Now, Victoria's Chief Health Officer suggested that state is on track to reopen at the end of the month. Are you confident in that timeline and the plan, given how high the current case numbers are? Yeah, the reproductive number, that, that um, trend for growth in cases was actually starting to level off before we saw this boost of numbers following the, uh, the, the football weekend um, a week ago. So, but they are starting to look like they're tapering again. And with a bit of um, extra effort around the vaccination that's been going on over the last few weeks, we would expect to see that. This is the time where New South Wales had already started to turn their numbers around for the same vaccination rate. So um, I think we can be confident that we're going to start to see that um, benefit of having more people in the community vaccinated. The areas where the most cases have been, their numbers, their reproduction number is down below one now. Those numbers, case numbers are coming down. And our vaccinations are still really high. We've had um, weeks now of really high vaccination rates for first dose. We've now shortened the time to the second dose. That will actually help us reach those vaccine targets as well. So I do think we should be optimistic as long as we keep, you know, hanging in there for these last few weeks, both with the restrictions we have in place, but also people following up to complete their vaccinations. Mm, I sure hope so. They've endured so much. And New South Wales has also changed the length of time close contacts need to isolate. So for anyone vaccinated, um, they only have to isolate for seven days now and get a negative test. Do you think that's a sensible approach? 
Yeah, look, so acknowledging that there's a smaller risk for people who are vaccinated if they have been exposed to actually get the virus in the first place. If people are infected, um, it, it looks like they have a shorter infectious period themselves. So even if they do get infected in that first week, they're likely to have cleared the infection, at least for the first few months after your vaccination, that's certainly the case. And they've been watching the people they've had in quarantine um, and, and testing them, not just at the end. A lot of people think people get become positive on day 14 or 13, but that's only because they've been in quarantine, had no symptoms and they don't get tested till then. So in fact, to do to make these decisions, they'll be doing more regular testing and they'll um, probably still be tested even if they're outside of quarantine. If they find too many people turning positive in the second week, then they, would, they wouldn't go with this step. So I think they've got good information that, uh, that that's a reliable and safe thing to do, but they'll probably still ask people to test. They've still got other restrictions in place. They can't also go to hospitality venues. So they're also playing it safe. They're saying you can get out and about, but please, don't go to hospitality, don't go to work if it's a high-risk workplace um, or you work in hospitality. So there will still be some safety constraints. Mm. Okay, Professor Catherine Bennett from Deakin University, thank you as always. Thanks, Angie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. If you look to the skies above Brisbane or the Gold Coast today, you may have spotted a banner carrying a desperate message to the Prime Minister. It says, ScoMo, let our overseas parents visit. A group of more than 20,000 people who call Australia home crowdfunded the campaign to highlight the fact they've been forgotten in the plans to reopen our international border next month. I'm joined by Valeria Greenfield, who's part of a group lobbying for parents of people living in Australia to be allowed in. Val, you're married to an Australian, but none of your family can get here. That's correct. My parents are not considered immediate family for travel exemptions, so they are not allowed to come here. And when the National Cabinet released the National Plan for Opening, we were very disappointed that our parents were left to last after other groups such as international students, business visa holders and critical skills um, visa holders as well. And that, that is very disappointing. You've had a particularly difficult uh, past 18 months. Can you share it with us? Um, well, my daughter was born in March 2020 and my parents were coming here in a five years visa to help me support for um, to help me support my daughter and also so I can go back to full time work. But that never happened, obviously, because the borders closed, which we all support. 
um, it's only that we, we don't want um, tourists in, ma in masses here. We, we, all we are asking is for our Australian kids to be allowed to be with, with their grandparents mm. because that is having a massive toll in our mental health and our physical health. It is really difficult to live day by day with the thought that you might never ever see your, your dad or your mom again. That I, fear consumes you. I understand you suffered from postnatal depression quite badly and you were crying every day, made two applications to the government to have your parents come out, rejected both times. Mm -hmm. That must have been heartbreaking for you. Yeah, it, it, it was heartbreaking because my daughter is now 18 months and all those moments were missed. The first the first birthday, the baptism, the first time she, she walked, the, the time, the first time she ate, those times are gone and are lost and you can never get them back. And the worst thing is the uncertainty because if we were given a date, you have something to look forward, you have hope, but we have nothing. We have a, a maybe a possibility and now it, it, it's even worse because all we know is that we, our parents are in the same category as tourists and they're not tourists. They are family and they should be considered immediate family as partners and kids of Australian citizens and residents are. Australia is the only developed country that hasn't prioritized grandparents over this pandemic. And that has a massive toll on millions of people here in Australia whose parents were born overseas. 24,000 people are part of your group, but what sort of heartbreaking situations are they in? A lot worse than mine. We have people, we have moms going through cancer, stage four, chemo, um, difficult births, um, people that are literally dying and their exceptions are approved, are not approved. And at the same time, we, we every day we see exceptions for sports people and their families, celebrities and their families. We see um, videos of famous grandparents from overseas coming here that are not even Australians visiting their grandparents, their grandchildren. And that shouldn't be, f that shouldn't be the law. That is not fair. Our, there are millions of Aussie kids with grandparents and they should not be left behind just because their grandparents are not rich or famous. Well, thank you so much for sharing your message tonight on the latest. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Andrew. A mixed picture across Asia at a quiet time for much of the continent as China celebrates its Golden Week holiday. Aussie shares were the clear outperformers, picking up on where Wall Street left off on Friday with travel stocks and our big four banks marching higher. Now, the focus in the US overnight will be on the debt ceiling. The government is bumping up against how much it can borrow and needs to agree a higher limit before it's forced to stop payments, such as Social Security and public sector salaries. Oil has been hovering just under 80 US dollars, but is currently gently retreating, while the Aussie dollar is flatlining after regaining some ground in recent days. And Thank you, Jem. And a Melbourne woman has given birth in the driveway of a stranger's house after failing to make it to the hospital in time. Steve and Nikki McRae were on their way to the delivery ward on Saturday morning when baby Finn decided to enter the world in a hurry. The surprised homeowners were happy to bring out torches and towels, which the new parents have promised to replace. 
and two Perth pranksters who make YouTube videos claim to have breached security at the AFL Grand Final by sneaking into Optus Stadium without a ticket. The pair posed as tradies and waltzed straight past security to watch the game. WA Police is investigating if a law's been broken after being alerted by stadium staff who saw the video online. Legal experts say it might be difficult to charge them because they weren't stopped from entering the venue. Thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Angela Cox. Good night.